I'm Eileen Dunn and this is the Good Friday edition of The God Slot. And Jesus was a sailor when he walked upon the water And he spent a long time watching from his lonely wooden tower And when he knew for certain only drowning men could see him He said, all men will be sailors then until the sea shall free them. But he himself was broken long before the sky would open. Forsaken, almost human, he sank beneath your wisdom like a stone. to travel with him and you want to travel blind and you think maybe you'll trust him for he's touched your perfect body with his mind Once when Jesus was praying alone with only the disciples near him he asked them who do the crowd say that I am they answered John the Baptist but others Elijah and still others that one of the ancient prophets has arisen. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? That passage from St. Luke's Gospel attempts to address how Jesus of Nazareth, believed by Christians to be the Son of God, was perceived by his contemporaries. Nowadays, leaving aside any claims to divinity, some theologians cast doubt on the very existence of the historical Jesus. So on this day, when we commemorate the crucifixion of the Galilean prophet, exorcist, healer and teacher, at what is also a special time for those of the Jewish faith, we take time to pause and wonder what what Jesus might do professionally, politically and religiously were he to walk the earth in modern times. To help us in our musings, we're joined by a very distinguished panel, Jewish author, businessman and motivational speaker, Yankee Fackler, the Reverend Darren McCallig, Church of Ireland chaplain at Trinity College in Dublin, columnist Mary Kenny and Professor Sean Frayne, author of Jesus, a Jewish Galilean. So let's begin with what profession he might adopt. And as our Jewish Palinist Yankee, can I start with you? Well, he'd obviously, um, because of all his his background, his his um, natural tendency uh, to um, be, concern himself with the marginalised um, sectors of society, I would imagine him as some sort of um, the head of a, of an NGO, maybe an international NGO. With that was its remit to look after the marginalised, the poor, the, uh, the abused. I sort of see him as getting straight into that sort of field. Mary? Well, of course, um, he, he was trained to be a carpenter, in fact, so he might still be an artisan. And um, I think that our introductory music was rather good because um, uh, you have a, a Jewish singer, Leonard Cohen, talking about Jesus, and he might well have been a troubadour or, or, or a musician, which would give him the chance to uh, move among all kinds of people. But I, I do think that, um, you know, our commercial world would be probably rather foreign or would be something that he would not be comfortable with, if, if one can imagine it that way, because he always... the. 
the Jesus Christ of the Gospels, there is a very strong sort of hippie element in, you know, in, 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 in his aspirations and in the way he lived. So I don't think it would be something that would be within the establishment or within those kind of structures. It would be something very freelance and perhaps of an artisan type. Darren, the hippie, a troubadour? <laughs> <laughs> I think the first thing I would say is that he would quite likely be a she. Mm-hmm. So let me explain what I mean by that. You know, if you look at world Christianity and the profile of world Christianity, it's changed so much in recent years. In fact, the recent election of the first uh, South American cardinal as, as pope uh, perhaps points to this. And it's often said that the typical or the average Anglican Christian today is a black woman under 30 with three children who walks three kilometres a day to collect fresh water, who lives on less than $2 a day and who is related to someone with HIV AIDS. So it seems to me that if you want to ask where or who Christ would be today, that that would be a pretty good place to start. You know, start with those who are denied the basic entitlements of life because of their gender, because of their economic status, because of their race. That's where Christ would be and that's where Christ, I believe, is. Sean Frayne, do you agree? Well, I, I think uh, I agree with what Darren says. These certainly would be a great concern to Jesus were he to, to, be, to return at this juncture. But I think more with, towards Mary's <coughs> idea of, of seeing him on the, on the margins a little bit more. Um, it's interesting, there's a story in St Mark's Gospel about um, uh, when he goes back to Nazareth and uh, people are very upset about where did this guy get all this knowledge and so on. And then they they say, wasn't he just a carpenter or the carpenter's son in another version? So uh, really he has left behind, I think, the, the, the everyday chores and he's living, uh, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The son of man is just travelling around and uh, he, he's not part of any organisation, nor did he intend to start an organisation either. So I think that I, I would be inclined to think towards Mary's point of view. Nonetheless, he... he uh, clearly challenged the value systems and was seen as a threat both to the religious and to the political establishment of his own time. And wherever one could locate such a person today, I think, would be where one would hope to find him and well, expect to find to him. Well, let's come to that. Where would he stand politically, in your view? Well, he would clearly, again, not be a member of any party, <laughs> but he would rather be where the poor were. And that's, I think, where I take up what Darren said just now. And the marginalised. I mean, his vision, I think, for the human family was one of inclusive inclusivity, uh, was a non-judgmental approach to people uh, and so on. So I think that, that that would be kind of the direction I would want to look for him and see where, where I would uh, hope to find him. I, my, in my own kind of... Uh, uh, view, I think Jesus may well have spent some time with John the Baptist in, in the desert and may well indeed have had some association with the Essenes but clearly saw that the Essene movement was far too isolated far too uh, elitist in its own way and exclusivist and so eventually he returns to Galilee uh, after John is arrested interestingly all the Gospels say it's only after John is arrested that he returns and then he challenges the uh, it's there he begins a different type of ministry Tell us, explain a little bit what the Essene movement is for our listeners. Uh, Well they were kind of hippies weren't they in a way? Well uh, not so much, I I wouldn't call them hippies, you know they lived there were different types of Essenes to begin with but the one we know best is clearly the, the the one that is associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found beside the beside the Judean in the Judean desert, and there uh, we we see something like a monastic kind of type of settlement. Uh, 
with very strict regulations in terms of entry, in terms of pro progression within it and so on. So I think that uh, uh, that probably... I'm not suggesting these will actually ever remember, but I think they were kind of associates, if one might say, uh, of, of the Yassine movement. And uh, uh, some people suggest, for example, that Bethany, uh, Bethany where he visited, was uh, the house of the poor. And so that Jesus may have well... Uh, there may have been, as it were, uh, a movement uh, in Bethany that he visited there as well. So I think that we, we'd have to see him within those kind of dissident uh, groups that are challenging the systems religiously and politically, uh, wherever we would want to locate him today. I have difficulty, I have to say, in terms of putting him into, into the modern world, uh, because I think uh, uh, there is there's obviously very important to ask how his values uh, address the modern world and how we would uh, somehow or other make those values uh, uh, r real in our world today. And I think our recently elected Pope is is beginning his ministry with, with very good uh, indications that he has taken very seriously the Jesus of the poor in a way that perhaps uh, Benedict didn't, if one reads Benedict's uh, Life of Jesus, where Jesus is more a kind of a mystical figure, really. Uh, I think there's quite a different, an interesting contrast there, it seems to me, in terms of the way they, they, they would see the Jesus figure. Uh, we'll come back to that in a second. Yankee, I saw you nodding your head. My, my first thought when the new Pope was, uh, was elected... Um, the first thing that sort of went around was he cooks for himself. And it's funny that Sean talks about the Essenes because one of the most um, palpable s signs of the Essene community that lived by the Dead Sea is they've got their plates from their dining room. And I just had this thought of, um, uh, of them um, preparing their own food. And so maybe the new Pope is, um, is more of an Essene than we realised. Um, you see... Looking at, at historical Jesus, because for a Jew, that, that's all we do, um, we don't have any of the associations of divinity or, or, or even the Gospels. Um, I suppose I tend to see him as maybe less radical than some would, because at that time, in that period, under Roman uh, suppression, there were lots of people like Jesus. There were lots of nomadic preachers, um, around the country, and what they had in common was that they were railing and ranting against the authorities, but what they also had in common is that this was all very much within the standard, you can't even call it um, orthodox because there was no orthodox, it was within the standard Jewish uh, traditions. So he would not have argued um, about any of the values that he learnt as a Jew who was born a Jew and studied as a Jew and, and, and only had the Jewish scriptures um, at his, uh, um, you know, available to him. And so th the difference, I suppose, is that these people were almost well-known dissidents, but he was certainly not alone. There, we know that there were lots of rabbis, rabbi meaning teacher, around at the time doing the same sort of thing. Would he be a Zionist, in your view? Well, he didn't, wouldn't need to be. He lived there. I mean, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's almost irrelevant. That, that was the, he never went, you know, um, abroad. He never went on, on Spanish holidays um, or anything else. He, he was born in Israel. He lived in Israel. And that was, that, and, and died, of course. And, and, and sort of all he knew um, and, and all he was concerned about was, was Israel. His 
um, in terms of Zionism being a, a movement to bring Jews back to their, um, to their original home, um, he would have been concerned over issues of sovereignty. But that, again, is because it was under Roman occupation. Darren, I see you wanting to come in there. Yeah, I wanted to go back to the thing about the poor because I think Sean is right. It can be very difficult to place Jesus in today's world as we're, that's why we're having this discussion, I suppose. And one of the reasons it seems uh, to me for that is that for so so many of Jesus' teachings, we've we've tended to blunt them. We've tended to take the radical edge off them. For instance, what's Jesus' most famous saying about the poor, seeing as we're on on that topic? The poor you will always have with you. The poor you will always have with you. And over and over again, and I've heard this in homilies and sermons, I'm sure the others here perhaps have heard it too, that the usual interpretation goes something like this. <clears throat> well, there'll always be poor people, the poor you'll always have with you. And so no matter what you try and do, no matter what programs you put in place, there'll always be poor people. So, you know, don't really kind of beat yourself up too much about it. It seems to me that's a total misinterpretation of what Jesus was saying. Two things. First, who's saying it? Jesus who was poor himself. Secondly, who is he saying it to? His followers who are largely poor themselves. So what he's talking about is proximity to the poor. The poor you will always have with you, alongside you, beside you. If you are following me properly, if you are taking on board the things I'm trying to say to you, you will not retreat into a middle-class ghetto like so many of our churches, it seems to me, are today. You will be with the poor. They will be with you. Their priorities will be your priority. And to go back again, I think this is what's so exciting perhaps about about the election of the new pope, that there seems to be a re-emphasis now that, yes, the poor you will always have with you because you will be alongside them. Sean, did you want to come well, back in there? Just to add to that, and of course I agree with what Darton has been saying, uh, is of course he also said, blessed are the poor. And that was extraordinary by any standards, either Roman or Jewish. Uh, the, the whole Jewish system was, uh, Deuteronomy, for example, is, you know, that if you, do, if you obey God's law, you'll be blessed and you'll have good life in the land and so on and so on. So, so the, the value system was one of reward for living the good life. And in fact, here is Jesus saying, blessed, that is a very strong word indeed, uh, blessed are the poor, uh, that you are... And, Present tense, not future, mind you. This is not a question of putting up with it now and later you'll do well for it, but rather you are blessed now. And, of course, I think that's where a lot of the liberation theology reflection has come is on, people like Gutierrez and others, uh, is to look at what precisely does that mean in terms of one's understanding of the world uh, and one's openness to the world and the reality of the world and the reality of evil in the world. So I think that these are... these are, I agree indeed that Jesus perhaps uh, realised that there was, there was no uh, magic wand that could be, could be waved that would, would uh, get rid of poverty or anything like that, but rather that one has to see the value of understanding the world differently and understanding, therefore, the use of goods in the world and the, uh, so on. So I think, think there's a whole ethic, if you like, uh, emerging there in that simple statement, blessed are the poor. I think on the political side, <clears throat> it seems to me, goodness knows I'm not a biblical scholar at all, but it seems to me Jesus Christ was very careful never to be drawn into any political commitment. So there was no, there might have been preaching, but there was no ranting on a on a political scale. And how careful he was to say, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's, which of course we interpret, I think rightly, as the division of church and state. And you know, Jesus is a very, um, in many ways, contradictory figure. I mean, this is why there have been so many interpretations. And 
over, over the centuries and so many accretions of uh, different knowledge and why indeed he may also be all things to all men because he, he, he may mean something to the rich as well as the poor. Um, but there is that, uh, you know, non-judgmental side, of course, and compassionate, the woman taking adultery and so on, very, very strong, but that's also quite a stern side as well sometimes. You know, I come not to bring peace but a sword. And, um, you know, you must leave your mother and father and follow me. There is, you know, quite a strong side in, uh, to that character. But, um, but the non-materialist side seems to be uh, one of the most consistent themes. And I was just wondering, Professor Sean, if this, is, this came from the Essenes, you know, consider the lilies of the field. Mm. They, they weep, they reap not, neither do they sow, oh, yet I yeah. tell you that Solomon in all his glory is not attired as one of these. Um, and uh, uh, th that's very much the kind of values the Essenes had, isn't it? Yes, uh, except that they were living in the desert, so I'm not sure how much uh, uh, <laughs> of lilies they saw there, but I think you're absolutely right. I think Jesus for me, is somebody who does look at the world around him and is aware of nature as well and the importance, the, the, the interaction between the, the human and the, and the physical universe. His parables, for example, are very, many of his examples, the rain will fall and the just and yes. the unjust. There's so much of, of the kind of rural world, if you like, and I, I, I prefer to think of that as Galilee, of course. I, I would, of course, because I've done so much study in Galilee. But uh, could I come back briefly to what... what uh, Young Young Yankee had just said about Jesus and, and Zion. I think it is, it is important. I, for me, it has been very important in my own studies over the years to emphasise just how, how rooted in his Jewish heritage Jesus was. Because, of course, there has been a trend in Christian theology, particularly in the 19th century, to make Jesus more and more a Greek and uh, a universalist figure. Famous Ernst Renan, a French uh, theologian, uh, uh, wrote a book and, and he started that trend <coughs> of Jesus being somebody larger and greater and more important than Judaism. He broke out of the narrow confines of the priestly, uh, Pharisaic movement and so on, so on. Very strongly anti-Semitic, uh, 19th century anti-Semitic views. I think we've, we've begun to turn that corner now and see that Jesus was indeed uh, deeply indebted to his own Jewish tradition. At the same time, fitting him into that, any of the parties that we know of, the Pharisees, Sadducees, whatever, even the scenes, is quite difficult. I think that he's, in that sense, quite, a, quite a, a, an eclectic figure, if I may say so. So if but, he were to come back seeing all that has happened, would he have any religion at all? Oh, gosh, yes. Absolutely. I think he, he Jesus, faith in, in the God of Israel was never was never shaken and I don't think it would be but I think that uh, at the same time in terms of, of your question to earlier about his Zionist background I think we, we should remember as well that the symbol of Zion is a very important symbol in the, in the Hebrew Bible and we must kind of restore it There's some beautiful psalms about Zion and uh, Zion will somehow wisdom will go forth from Zion and so on so these are, these, are, these are very powerful symbols it seems to me and that Jesus was prepared to kind of 
of uh, affirmed those, but quite upset at what he discovered when he got to Jerusalem eventually, and that it somehow didn't live up to the expectations of a Galilean pilgrim coming to Zion and finding out that it wasn't uh, it wasn't as were living up to the to the noble aspirations. At the same time, his own community is is structured on the twelve, which is a symbolic number for the tribes of Israel, the restoration of Israel, and that 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 is the beginning of the messianic times which will also include the Gentiles eventually in the Great Banquet. I think that's his vision, really, of, of, of humanity coming together. Yankee, did you want to come back Yes, I, I think, for me, this is very interesting because as a child growing up, Jesus was a name that Jews barely mentioned. He was acknowledged because most Jews lived in a Christian environment, but... He was not someone, he was sort of discussed in whispers, almost. And that's changed. You've now got mainstream rabbis, orthodox rabbis, writing about Jesus today, which is a very new and I think a very welcome phenomenon. Um, when the, uh, the, this question that um, is um, uh, engaging us today about if Jesus was to come back today, and I, I, my immediate reaction was, it's not a question of um, where he would go to pray because the only place he knew would have been a synagogue. And a synagogue was not necessarily a house of prayer. Synagogue originally was a house of study where you also prayed. And, of course, when Jesus was alive, there was a temple which was the, the focus of, of, you know, of all Jewish practice and thought. Uh, and now he's coming back to an era with no temple. So the synagogue, of course, has assumed some of the temple's functions. For me, the only question is, which synagogue would he go to? <laughs> and, and I think that's a very important question because um, today there are choices that weren't available 2,000 years ago. He certainly would not go to the Orthodox. And I think the question is, in my opinion anyway, which of the non-Orthodox, non-traditional synagogues would he feel at home in? And I suppose that's um, something which, you know, a, a, um, Jewish representatives from different synagogues could probably have a wonderful time uh, arguing um, uh, that one out. Darren, your thoughts well, on this? Well, you know, if, if God is an Englishman, then clearly Jesus is an Irishman and <laughs> a member of the Church of Ireland. <laughs> but um, just on this question... All you know, to all men, that's what that <laughs> Exactly. <Yeah. laughs> and women and everybody else. Um, just this question of what, what religion would, you, would Jesus be a member of today? You know, I, I always think of the great Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, has this wonderful phrase which he uses a lot. And in fact, I think it was the name of his most recent book. And it's this. He says, God is not a Christian. God is not a Christian. So is Jesus a Christian? That's a, that's a, that's a very good question. Well, to answer it, all I could say is I can only assume that Jesus would do now what he did back then. I mean, that's the basis of our, of, our, of our discussion. And what did he do that back then? Well, I think one of the things he did was he called us to see that the law of love trumps all other laws. All religions, all doctrines, all rules, all regulations are trumped by the law of love. Now, why do I say that? I point, as my, as my witness, I point to the most famous parable of all, which I bet if you did a survey on the street, most people would know the parable of the Good Samaritan. What's the parable of the Good Samaritan about? Is it that we should be nice to people who are lying injured on the side of the road? 
of course, but that's hardly very uh, revolutionary. That's not the sort of thing that gets you gets you executed. No, it seems to me the parable of of the Good Samaritan is about the dangers of 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 religion, the dangers of religion. For example, the priest and the Levite walk by. Of course, they do. They have to. They've got to follow their religious rules. The Samaritan should also walk by, should follow his own religious rules. But this amazing thing happens. In our English, it's usually translated, he's moved with pity. But the Greek word there is this wonderful word. I'm sure Sean knows it better than me. Esplanknesa. And it's to do with bowels and guts. So basically, what happened is the Samaritan, his guts were so churned inside him that he did something against his religion, as it were. In other words... Rules and religions are important, but you know what? People are more important. And I think that would be the keystone and the touchstone uh, if we're going to try and answer the question, where would Jesus be religiously well, today? The Good Samaritan yeah. is, is one of those wonderful parables from which people can take their own uh, message. <clears throat> Remember Margaret Thatcher's mm. message from the Good Samaritan was if he didn't have the money to help the guy, he wouldn't have been able to help the guy. You know, so you need the dinare. <laughs> I mean, that, well, that was, and she was raised as a Methodist right. and she had a very strong uh, 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 yeah. concept of the, of the New Testament. So that was her interpretation. Mm. I actually heard a wonderful, the, the best sermon practically I ever heard uh, uh, on the Good Samaritan, uh, a priest telling a story about how he was left without petrol on the side of a motorway and every single car passed him by until a group of the most ferocious-looking Hell's Angels mm-hmm. turned up mm-hmm. and they had, you know, tattoos and, and, you know, spikes coming out of every orifice and they were the most <laughs> wonderful people. They helped him, they bought the petrol, they, 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 they... And, you, you know, they gave him a, uh, an escort into the, into the city and he said at the end of that... You don't know where the kindness will come from. So that, to me, was the most Mm. wonderful Mm. interpretation Mm. of the Good Samaritan. And if I can just come back, it's even more radical than that, because what is the question that's asked that elicits the answer of the parable of the Good Samaritan? The question that's asked is, what Mm. shall I do to inherit eternal life? So what Jesus does when he's asked who is saved or how can you inherit eternal life, he holds up a member of another faith as an example of how you inherit eternal life. How wonderful it would be if all of us in our different faith groups were able on a regular basis and did on a regular basis hold up members of other faiths as examples of good and godly living. Now, that would be quite something. Indeed. Yankee, you wanted to come in there. Yeah, I think that, again, I'm speaking from a Jewish perspective. There are some uh, what I would regard as misconceptions conceptions here. Um, The way in which the emergence of Christianity has been portrayed is against, as Darren was saying, a background of very rigid, the very rigid law, and that in some way Jesus came to um, uh, mend, repair, replace, um, or, or whatever. But the reality is that the Jewish religion has never, ever been, and Jewish practice has never, ever been, Um, solely concerned with um, rules and regulations, Um, nor has it only been concerned with with Jews. There's a wonderful um, passage in uh, Micah. Um, You have been told, O man, what is good. And O man doesn't say O Jew, it says O man, which means all of mankind. Um, In Jewish practice, the emphasis on the relationship between man and man person and person, to be um, politically correct, is given not just equal standing with the relationship between 
man and God, but actually a higher standing. I'll give you a very quick example that maybe illustrates this. Yom Kippur is the most um, important day in the Jewish calendar, the day of um, atonement. You repent for your sins in the past year and you promise to be good in the following year. And it is really a very solemn day. But in Jewish um, thinking, we are told that unless you turn up at the synagogue, and some people only come once a year to the synagogue on that day, unless you turn up having already made peace with your fellow man, stay at home and don't bother. Because God isn't interested in anything you have to say unless you've first of all done what you should have done and apologized to the people that you may have wronged, rather than coming and being very pious to God. And I think there's, it, it, it's, it's an important distinction to make because, in, again, from a Jewish point of view, Jesus and other rabbis, itinerant rabbis at the time, everything that they were doing was within a very shared, um, if you like, scriptural experience. No one was attempting to say, Let's ditch A, B, or C. I've got something new. But like any good teacher, any good rabbi, any good preacher of any faith, you find something and you use that to tell a story, prove a point, um, tell people that they should be doing things differently. And so that is the context within which Jews would see all of the teachings as opposed to this sudden radical division between before and after. So would he be disillusioned if he came back today? That's, um, I think he'd be very practical, like, like we all have to be. You look at what there is and you make, your, you make your choices, you make your decisions. So therefore the question is, what job will he look for? <laughs> what will he go for? Um, which party will he um, go for? Or will he start his own party? And um, where will he choose to um, express his, uh, his love of his God? And um, so I think these, I, I don't think it's a matter of dis- disillusionment. Sort of, you know, we can all say, well, you know, I'm disillusioned, I'm packing up. Um, but the whole point is that this is a discussion about him coming back. I doubt if he'll say, well, this isn't for me and go back again. <laughs> no, but he might change it radically. Darren, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's often said that Jesus preached the coming of the kingdom of God and what we got was the church. <laughs> and it's difficult sometimes not to be very disappointed by that. Um, but I suppose what I would say is, well, a number of things. Firstly, I would say it seems from the gospel record that most of, the, of his followers misunderstood him, that one of them denied him three times and that one of them, one of them betrayed him. So perhaps this is, this is nothing new that we're, that we're letting him down. But what I would say, and it links back to what I've been saying earlier, is that what we need to do is be truly radical. And of course, what radical means is going back to the roots, to go back to the roots of the Jesus message, the Jesus movement, and to, and to try and make real for us today the truly revolutionary nature of his teaching. You know, as, as Yankee was saying, there's continuity in this discontinuity. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's you've heard it said what I say to you. So in other words, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I'm saying don't even look lustfully at someone. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I'm saying do not even have angry thoughts. So it's about a, a radical, a radicalization of, uh, of the teaching. Sean. Yeah. Sorry, Mary, I'll come to you in a uh, second. Yeah, there are a number of things going around my head, actually, at this moment in time. <clears throat> but one of the things I would want to, to emphasize myself would, would be to say, Jesus, uh, while I think Yankee's 
picture of the synagogue and the gathering and so on is 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 very correct at one level. It's correct, in, but it doesn't take enough. It seems to me account of the differentiation that, as historians, we can show what within the Jewish kind of community at this particular time. That in fact, the whole encounter with the Greek world a century, two centuries before Christ, it was already a, a serious kind of, uh, created a serious kind of problem in terms of how far Judaism could, could respond to, could embrace the Greek world, or could re- reject it or resist it. And, of course, particularly then with the Romans coming and so on. So we, we have a very kind of uh, controversial political situation that Jesus is caught up in. I think this should bring us, on, particularly on Good Friday, to ask the question, why was he put to death and who put him to death? <clears throat> I think these are... This would be part of the of our attempt to answer answer our question: uh, What would he do, and where would he be today? So I I think that Jesus is is, is belongs to the prophetic tradition. Uh, you know, he's not doesn't belong to the priestly tradition, and there is there, there were tensions between the two. I mean, one has only to read any of the great prophets to see just how much they are critical of certain trends within the, the establishment, if we might use such a term. So uh, I think Jesus has to be seen within the prophetic tradition rather than the priestly tradition. He's not a priest. Uh, he's he's a Galilean prophet, a country prophet. What's more, he, when he comes to Jerusalem, uh, according to John's gospel, he's he's dismissed. I mean, who the heck is this guy? He never went to school. Where did he learn letters? As it, as John puts it, you know. So so he, he's outside the he's outside the circle, if you will, and yet he's challenging the the center of the circle, and that I think is is a very important side to it. Now, where ex- exactly is the challenge? I think that uh, Yankee mentioned as well this restoration of Israel, I, I, I like to take just the Our Father, the prayer of the Our Father itself, which, by the way, was not in the synagogue, but in the mountain. He did go to mountains, like a bit like Elijah and others to pray as well. He, he, he's, again, outside the system to some extent, but yet very much rooted in the tradition of the system. I don't want to see him as over against Judaism in any way, but but he's, he is one of many. But unlike other dissident groups, he he... Uh, 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 he he denies that violence is the way to answer. Yeah, forgive, forgive, uh, love your neighbour, love your enemy. Love your enemy is an extraordinary statement. And so I think that we have to see him at that point at the time, who are the enemies? Rome is the enemy. There are many enemies. The, 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 those who are prepared to kind of be part of the, the Herodians are the enemies. Who, who, you know, so, so we have to kind of see him in a particular social uh, context and see him responding to that. Now, if I go to the Our Father, I find two statements at the heart of the Our Father. The beginning and the end of it are about save us from evil and uh, <coughs> save, us, save us at the last. Or Father, may your name be hallowed very Jewish statement, the shame, and so on. But then at the centre of it, give us today sufficient bread for the day and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Two very concrete statements that go back to the Jewish ideal of the, the jubilee, the land that belongs to Israel. Israel are lessees in the land. The land belongs to Yahweh and he has given it to them and therefore the fruits of the land have to be shared. And the system, however much it was, uh, you know, not not fulfilled in reality, we don't know enough about uh, how far it was it was actually implemented. But the reality was that you you tried to restore the balance in terms of of, of ownership of, of properties even. And then on top of that, of course, the mention of the uh, sufficient bread for the day is of course recalling the desert experience of the manna, just enough for one day. 
sufficiency, enoughness, is one of our big problems today, it seems to me. We can't have enough of things. Jesus is saying, enough for the day. That's enough. Trust the Heavenly Father. And the, phrase you, uh, the passage you mentioned earlier, Mary, about uh, uh, why are you worried about what you eat, drink, or be clothed? Look at the lilies of the field, look at the birds of the air. That, I think, is, is getting close to the heart of his vision. And it's a question of where would that sit today and who would, who would want to get rid of him? I think that's the, that's the historical question we might want to ask. Mary, you want to come Well, I just wanted to say that where Yankee was mentioning um, how Jews today are, are studying Jesus, and I think this is marvellous because it's part of the terrific reconciliation between Jews and Christians, which, you know, has taken place and I I think that John Paul II really did, um, you know, he, he really did make an impression when he said to us, you know, remember the Jews are our elder, elder brothers, brothers in faith mm-hmm. and, and we have to remember that and I, I, I think that's terribly, terribly important for us always to, to, to remember our kinship with the with with the Jews and with with the Jewish faith, but um, when we move on to having the faith as something which is pure, Darren mentions aspires to that something which is not part of the church, and there is always that difference between faith and church, of course. But I think there is a tension here because nothing can really survive within this, the frailty of human nature without organisation. You have to have some kind of organisation to make something survive, whether it is a religion, whether it's a broadcasting company, whether it's a newspaper, what, whether it's a business or whatever it is, you must have structure and organisation. And, of course, structure and organisation does mean that um, you know you get layers, you get bureaucracies, you get corruption... Um, and you get uh, things being brought into the whole structure which really weren't part of the spirit. And so that is always a, a, a tension and a conflict, I think, within, um, with any belie- within any belief. But, of course, what we always have to do is go back to the, go back to the, uh, f- the roots and read the New Testament okay. and, indeed, the Old. Time is catching up with this, and so we, you bring us neatly to our final question. In Colm Tobin's play and subsequent novel, The Testament of Mary, there's a moment when Mary, the mother of Jesus, says that when people try to tell her about how her son gave his life to redeem the world, her answer is that it wasn't worth it. The question is, if he came back today, would he think it was worth it? I think it's a very, very corrupted um, quote, to be honest, Eileen, because he is actually trying to, to deconstruct the whole story. He, th- this is not a play, uh, this work is not a work which actually uh, in any way uh, honours the, the, the story of Mary and Jesus. It is very much a secular deconstruction of it. So I don't really accept the premise that it, the, 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 well, it's a work, which it's based. Well, it's a work of fiction. It's a play, it's a, it's a subsequent it, novel. Sure, to be sure, but um, yes, of course, I, I would um, uh, say, of course, uh, of course, Jesus would come back and 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 bring faith and human and humanity and divinity and everything that is in the New Testament. Of course, it's worth it uh, to 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 think that it it uh, even at the cost of sacrifice. Of course, one must um, one must go on with hope. Yankee. I think there's an actor missing for me in this dialogue. Um, the way in which the historical 
um, context of Jesus is always presented. Everyone knows about the priests and everyone knows about um, coming to Jerusalem. And of course, there's the Romans and the different types of Romans. But there's one actor to which actually Jesus had more affinity, and that is the rabbis. And the rabbis were, their job was to interpret and reinterpret almost on a daily basis what the practice of Judaism was. Now, these rabbis, some of them were so poor, they didn't even have the penny required to attend the lessons of other rabbis, and they used to sneak in and sit in the loft to hear the uh, conversations. I think that I tend to see Jesus as being very much part of the rabbinical tradition of change from within, challenging from within. And again, in that respect, he was not different from many others. And anything he had to say was always within the same context. So, no, he he wouldn't be disillusioned and he wouldn't feel that it wasn't worth it because he would say, okay, let's see where we are and let's see how we reconcile and let's move on. And I think that in that respect, he would be taking a very Jewish perspective. Sean? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I'm, again, I'm not so sure we we can discuss this now. I, 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 I still would want to see Jesus as not part of the rabbinic movement. I think the rabbinic movement, as Yankee has described it, is something that is really post-70, after the destruction of the temple. When the rab- rabbinic Well, mov- come at it from your own perspective. Yeah, but my own perspective then is, to go back to your question, uh, is the one of... Uh, Yes, I think, of course, he would have thought it was worthwhile. Heavens, I mean, in this awfully secular world we've had, in this awfully secular place of RTE, quote-unquote, uh, we, we end up we by, send, <laughs> by sending people to Rome and the, the excitement of uh, the election of a pope over the last few weeks. I've seen nothing like it in the Western world. So, you know, I've, and I know it may be just uh, interest in, 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 in the, the ceremonials and all the rest of it, but there are a lot of people at the, at the coal face working with the poor, working, and our, our, our newly elected pope is somebody that I think will, will give great strength to, to those such people uh, and great inspiration to them. So, of course, Jesus' vision is still alive and well. And I think he would have said, great. I know it has got corrupted. It has got been taken over by a church that has taken on the whole imperial structure that he fought against at at the time of Constantine, three centuries later. And uh, continues much of that still. Hopefully, we get rid of some of that now with the Curia. But but really and truly, I think, of course, he, he would say it. There are wonderful things done in my name and uh, there is great concern uh, among a lot of people in, uh, throughout the world. It has been for good. It has, I know that a lot of bad things have been done in his name also. Of course that's the case. But he, certainly his vision is still alive, it seems to me. Darren McCallick, final word to you. Was it worth it? Uh, I suppose it depends how we understand who Jesus is and how we understand today in particular Good Friday. And for me, this is how I understand it. Jesus was the one who was fully who God created him to be every day of his life. Jesus was the one who loved God with all his heart, soul, strength and mind. And Jesus was the one who loved his friends so much that he stepped into the oncoming traffic of death in order to push them out of the way. And he did that with the basic human equipment. A beating heart, two good hands and a holy vision. And some friends who could see that vision too thereby telling us that such a life is not beyond our reach. And that, it seems to me, is enough reason to call today a good Friday. 
Darren, thank you for that. There we leave matters, perhaps unresolved, but hopefully we've given all our listeners some food for thought on this Good Friday evening. My thanks to Mary Kenny, Yankee Fackler, Sean Frain and Darren McCallig for providing us with such a stimulating discussion. We're off the air for the next two weeks with a programme about Mary Robinson filling our space next week and the following Friday there's another opportunity to hear Blighted Nation, the series about the Great Famine. We return on Friday, April the 19th with a short series of God Slot specials beginning with another opportunity to hear a very popular programme from our last series when four young people of different faiths examined what divided them and what they had in common. Until then, a very happy Easter to all our listeners. Banathi Nakoska or of Illich. And you want to travel with him And you want to travel blind And you think maybe you'll trust him For he's touched your perfect body with his mind.